0: Welcome to season four of the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. Hi everyone, I'm Lisa Laudico and I'm so glad you're here. Our Road to a Cure series continues this season. Here is senior co-host and producer, Victoria Goldberg, to get things started.
1: Hello friend, we're excited to bring you the premiere episode of our new series. It's a primer to NBC, and we call it NBC 101. If you're new to this disease, this series is for you. If you're an expert of being a patient, this series is for you too. How so? I have asked Martha Carlson, a member of the Road to Acuity, and one of the hosts for the series to give us a brief
2: introduction to the series as a whole and this episode in particular. During our interviews with some of the best researchers and oncologists of metastatic breast cancer for our Road to a Cure series, a need jumped out. How to help those of us living with MBC, no matter how long ago we were diagnosed, to live a full life and expand our horizons. Is there such a thing as being the best possible, most informed patient? Can we bring about better care for ourselves through engagement and education? Yes and yes. And MBC 101 wants to help you figure out how to do that. We kick off MBC 101 with, Hey Doc, what are you telling me? Where we get to the bottom of better doctor-patient communication, how to get things back on track if they go wrong, And what to do when the relationship just cannot be saved. If like me, NBC threw you into an unfamiliar world, one with its own language, new information shared in high stakes appointments, and a relationship with your oncologist that immediately became one of the most important relationships in your life, you know that how you talk together can make or break how you experience a moment or more in your care how can we make communication better so we get the best care possible in our intense sometimes long-term relationships with our oncologists to get the 360 degree view we turn to patients themselves and oncologist lydia shapira in her interview with us dr shapira likened communication to a game of catch you need to throw with intention but it also needs to be caught before you throw it back. We love this analogy and had it in mind while working on this episode. In the doctor-patient communication game of catch, there are two participants, a doctor and a patient, and we wanted to bring you a doctor's opinion and the patient's take on the subject in equal measures. In this episode, we interweave with the voice of Dr. Shapira, the experiences of MBC patients that they have generously shared with us. Good or bad,
1: or in between, is the foundation of how you feel about the care you receive. But it also affects your actual care. In a few minutes, we will introduce you to our guest. But first, we turn our attention to the patients. On two separate occasions, my co-host, Kate Fitzer and I sat down with a group of remarkable women living with MBC in a frank discussion about their experience in getting the diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer and navigating life and medical care while living with this diagnosis. Here's a short excerpt from that conversation. Um, I was
3: first diagnosed, and I was just referred to this doctor by my surgeon. And initially, I went in in a state of extreme trepidation about treatment i was convinced i was going to die and my doctor was not terribly sympathetic and i'm sure it was as much me as her but we didn't get along very well at one point i did interview another doctor and i decided i didn't like this other doctor and i kept my follow-up appointment with my oncologist and she said in a very aggravated tone, um, so, how was your visit with Dr. So-and-so? And I was like, what are you talking about? She had that experience. the experience of patients just disappearing. And I explained to her that I would never have walked away without saying anything. And that was when I said to her, look, you're going to be my doctor for the rest of my life. Just by saying that and the way I said it, it was clear that It was a meaningful relationship that needed to be treated as such. You're not just a doctor. You're someone who's going to follow me till I die. And I think that holding that in mind changes things. And she heard that. I remember putting the onus on myself to be clear about my needs and my concerns. And I tried, and I think she tried to from that point, to Be more attentive. And our relationship has really grown. A relationship with the doctor can develop. It can get better if you really try to communicate clearly and listen and trust that she's knowledgeable. I know my doctor stays up on the research. I know she cares. And I know she's very busy. So I can excuse a little occasional shortness, not if it's all the time. And our relationship has really developed, and these
1: days I'm very happy with her. What's interesting in your story is that she said that she had had experiences of patients leaving without letting her know. It doesn't seem like she questioned why until you addressed it. Well, that's
3: interesting. I've never thought of that, but maybe it changed. Maybe there were repercussions in the way she spoke to other patients as well. That's a nice thought. That's good. (laughs)
4: I never thought about that. You just leave. You don't go back and say, hey, this wasn't working. I I guess I think about how you would feel when people just disappear and they don't explain. Like you have all these thoughts in your head and you have no idea which one is the correct
3: one. The fact that over the past five years, I never missed an appointment. And that meant something to her. So especially if you're working out of a major hospital and you have people... From all walks of life, um, you have to deal with that. It's just one more thing to add to the difficulty of being a doctor, an oncologist especially.
5: I wanted to share a little bit more about communicating with doctors. I happen to have a wonderful oncologist who really listens. and, And so I feel grateful for that. However, when I had my biopsy in the beginning when I was first diagnosed and, you know, they send the nurse practitioners in and they tell you what's going to happen. And then the surgeon comes in and he's supposed to tell you or she's supposed to tell you what they're going to do. So the surgeon came in and he might as well have spoken Greek to me. He talks so fast and so matter of fact. I looked up at him and I said to him, I am really glad that someone else explained to me what was going to happen. Because if all I had to go on is what you just said to me, I would have had no idea what you were going to do. And I think it is important that you recognize that you are about to stick a needle into my breast. You might do this every day, but this is my breast we're talking about. What I wanted him to do was to get the message that, It's the person who's hearing it that needs to be considered. And there was this shocked silence from the doctor and also from the nurse. And he
4: apologized. I love what you said. But you said it in a nice way in the sense that this is how I'm feeling. And I think by explaining it to him, he took a step back because no one probably said that to him. And he may have actually been grateful and he is a better doctor because of that. Because if no one tells you what you're doing... How can you ever know that you need to alter what you're doing?
6: My initial diagnosis, this was back in 2009 when I had gone uh, for the appointment after biopsy. I said to the doctor, I'm looking for someone that's got some bedside manner, whatever you got to say, you say it gently. And... He just blurted out, you've got cancer and you need a mastectomy. And with that, I was like, okay, I would like copies of all my records right here. And I'm leaving. When you're in your appointment, this is like no news to anybody, but it is
5: so upsetting and so emotional. And I understand I have to advocate for myself and I will and I do. But I think that there's some sensitivity training that needs to be rooted with the doctors that they understand the position that people are in i think that a lot of women don't know
3: how important it is it to speak up and not to just leave but to let someone know that this isn't working don't nobody becomes a doctor because they don't care you become a doctor because you do uh, you want to help people I would think
5: yeah My primary care physician had to tell me I had metastatic breast cancer. And she told me, but I could tell how uncomfortable she was. Doctors want to fix people and make people well. And they've got us who aren't going to get well. It's just a matter of time. So they're uncomfortable. But I think physicians have to appreciate the fact that their discomfort is secondary to our discomfort.
3: Can I I share my nightmare story? just for entertainment value. I was in my first six months post-surgery, post-stage two. I was having some pains in my chest, which was turned out to really have been nothing. And I went into a panic, and I went to the ER, and they did a chest scan. And you know, you're in the ER, this is a New York hospital, we're in the ER, ER forever. I'm sitting in my little ER cubicle. This resident walks in she says you have a nodule in your lungs it's cancer i'm sorry goodbye she literally walked in told me i had cancer in my lungs and walked away i spoke to the radiologist who told me it was nothing i spoke to three doctors who told me it was nothing and i had to call and call till i got to head nurse on the phone and I gave it to them. And she was like, oh, thank you for calling. We're going to use this as a teaching moment. It's like teaching opportunity. She should be fired.
7: I had to learn how to be a think My My oncologist just left me a voicemail to tell me my tumor marker was up and it had never been up in 10 years. I was in a meeting and I saw my phone and I was like, "Oh, oh probably could have just said call my office back but i had to call and get my biopsy results from the nurse i think by then i knew what it was and so i just said it's almost thanksgiving can you just tell me what it is so my my oncologist never did tell me it was his nurse i do now wonder oh should i have told him i'm leaving and maybe said why because I just left him. We never had a, another visit. He was doom and gloom. I just figured I'm going to die. I had no hope in the first couple appointments with him. And I'm sure he could see it. I cried a lot. And there wasn't ever that reassurance. Now my doctor's complete off. She's like, you're going to live decades. And I don't know if she's just saying that to make me feel good. Because what I'm wondering about too, when a
1: doctor Doom and gloom, that's clearly not the right approach. But when the doctor is overly optimistic, do you start questioning it? You know the statistics and on a bad day, you realize that maybe it doesn't
7: exactly gel. In the beginning, I needed to hear that and that was great. Now I do wonder, are you lying to me? On the other hand, what am I looking for? I put a lot of pressure on my oncologist to save me and to stay up on clinical research. I told her from the beginning, I'm going to be your research patient. I read everything I can get my hands on. I join webinars, whatever. I want to believe her. I want her to come to me with this magic pill and say, the clinical research says that this is going to save you for years and years.
3: At the same time, you know that that isn't true. There's one thing to know that the possibility exists But we also have to hold in all the possibilities and not dwell in, well, I'm going to live 20 years. I'm going to live one.
4: We really don't know. And there's no way to know. My doctor would say, you'll
1: live as long as you live. But people want to know, especially those who have young children, who have to make plans. They would like to have an idea.
4: There really just isn't an idea. So we just don't know what that end is. We have to be hopeful I think we have to hold all the truth and balance it.
6: My oncologist is is someone with compassion, empathy, bedside manner, and he's extremely thorough. But in asking the question of him and the two other people that I've seen for second and third opinions in asking how much time or whatever, somebody at Duke Hospital told me, we can't say. Somebody at Sloan Kettering told me, we can't say. He told me three years. And although he was telling me three years, he was also telling me how um, with my HER2 positive, there's so many various options. And then in coming on this and other support groups to know and hear how many years people are living with metastatic cancer. So it's given me good signs of hope.
1: We want to introduce you today to Dr. Lydia Shapira. Dr. Shapira is Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine and Director of Cancer Survivorship at the Stanford Cancer Institute. Her clinical focus is in the treatment of breast cancer and cancer survivors. Her research addresses cancer outcomes and experiences of young breast cancer survivors the psychosocial impact of cancer and interventions to improve quality of life and health outcomes of people living with cancer. Martha Carlson, Kate Fitzer and I sat down with Dr. Shapira to talk about what makes a good doctor-patient relationship and how it happens, and sometimes does not happen. So here's Kate with the first question.
4: When we think about communication, it just, seems simple we do it every day all day long but in the end it really is complicated because we all communicate so differently and that difference can really impact our relationships as breast cancer patients we are frequent visitors to our cancer center and we may be in a long-term relationship with our oncologist so what do you think makes a really good doctor-patient relationship
8: I love your question about what makes a good patient-doctor relationship because it's so broad, right? And it's exciting to think about how we can bring our personalities in addition to our training or the roles we've been cast in. We may be assigned to be in the role of physician or patient, depending on what card we're dealt. A very dear patient of mine used to say that communication was like a game of catch. So I've always kept that in marine. When I think about good communication, it's something about bringing part of your best self to the table, creating an honest, open relationship, being able to articulate what you need, both for the patient and for the clinician. A clinician often needs to explain to a patient what needs to be done in 15 or 20 minutes in a visit. It's an ability to negotiate to craft a working arrangement to set together a collaborative agenda that gets fortunately iterated and revised over time not every visit is going to be great if you can find a way of talking about what doesn't work and actually uh, helping to make it better uh, by listening to each other by being clear about the needs I think that is sort of the beginning, but it takes time and patience and intention to build a good, collaborative, strong working relationship. I think I've heard you say
2: that good communication can improve outcomes, can change the trajectory
8: of an illness. And why does it happen and how does that happen? I think that good communication leads to more information being exchanged. So, more questions are asked. For instance, if there's a clinical choice that needs to be made about a treatment, if you feel comfortable and you can ask questions and you have a chance of stating or repeating what you've understood, you may have better clarity about what that treatment may afford you or what the anticipated side effects may be. I think that it may lead to a better outcome because it may also help you make a better informed choice. Uh, Good communication where you feel comfortable sharing concerns may lead to better symptom management and better symptom management may allow you to get the right treatment at the right time. So that's going to uh, affect the outcome as well. It may also tell you that there may be times when it may be better not to have treatment and to take a break from treatment. I think the outcomes may be shaped by how informed you are about what the treatment may give you in terms of the benefits, it may allow you to better understand the risks, may allow you to know when to seek another opinion or to ask your physician to talk about perhaps other treatment options, it may allow you to have better quality of life, and all of that may actually also prolong your life. That brings us to our next question. We do have a very
4: different relationship with our oncologist than, say, a primary care physician who we only see maybe annually. And because of this, we wonder how much should the oncologist know about us? And as a doctor, how well should you know your patient? And what should the patient share with you so that you can line up the best treatment for them?
8: I often walk in a room and I say to a new patient, tell me something about you that I'm not going to read in the chart. And what they do is recite their breast cancer history. And they say, no, I really didn't ask about that. And it's almost as if the people have internalized the role. And so they don't really hear us when we say, I want to know you and what makes you tick, what you wish for. I I want to understand that so that together we can approach this problem that is your cancer and come up with a plan that fits your life and fits your disease. I say this sort of elegantly now, but in the clinics, it's a little muddled because people are coming and they want to hear sometimes directly what we need to do, but in order for me to pick, I need to know more what makes sense to them and what makes sense to them now. So I think that your question goes to the whole idea of having a relationship and a connection between two human beings and if they are cast differently, one is clinician, one is patient, There's clearly a power asymmetry in the doctor-patient relationship, and I do my best to try not to um, exaggerate or exacerbate that perception. So I want to meet somebody. I want to find something we can talk about where I'm not the expert. And one of the key ingredients for this to work well is trust. I, I must tell you as a clinician that I sometimes feel that My patient doesn't trust me, and then when I feel that in the room, I find it very difficult to build that kind of solid relationship. So I think trust is something that I can't prescribe. It needs to be there, and it's something that certainly a patient needs to invest in, and perhaps what they need to do is find the right person to trust. But without trust, I really don't see the potential for healing relationships.
2: I think trust probably comes into play with the question that I have. This is actually something that I've experienced. It can be frustrating to feel like you are repeating the same issue over and over again. That's probably especially common with metastatic cancer. I'm just wondering, is there anything that a patient can do to improve their communications in that kind of situation to get the most out of an appointment?
8: You bring up a very important point, and that's the issue of having to repeat oneself And the fatigue that comes with feeling that you haven't been heard perhaps, or the way our health system is set up, where often different people ask you the same information and you wonder why this needs to happen. Everybody feels frustrated by that. I worry a little bit that in your question, there may be two different things. One is that the clinician may be inattentive or may not really hear you. And if that happens repeatedly, there may be a problem in that relationship. Because you shouldn't have to say the same thing over and over to the same person. On the other hand, if you have given some details to different members of the team or different specialists in a multidisciplinary group, it may be that the clinician really needs to hear it from you. And you may be frustrated in that moment and say, oh my gosh, this information's in the chart. Why do I need to say it? The response to the scenarios could be very different. I think if you find yourself having to repeat the same thing to the same person, there's a problem. I would approach it as with any communication problem, try to figure out what's gone wrong and address it if possible or find a solution for it. If, on the other hand, um, you find that it's difficult for you, And it's not a problem with the relationship, but with the system, maybe also addressing it explicitly and say, I feel anxious, take ownership of it with an I statement and say, I really feel that it it makes me feel either disrespected, anxious, whatever you're feeling in that moment, have to say it over and over again and see if there can be a resolution. I think the diagnoses may be different in different situations. And I would hate to just give one generic answer to this question.
1: Let's put our interview on pause for a minute and hear from the patient. It's very
3: important to simply establish the intention to have a good relationship with your doctor. And to believe that a good relationship with the doctor is possible and that it's a relationship and you will hold up your part or do your part. And repeating that intention, yes, I want this to be a good relationship. And of course, at the same time, you have to recognize when it's not, but you want to know that you're doing everything you can, and that includes speaking up when you need to in a way that's polite and appropriate, being on time, keeping your appointments, being respectful. For me, I didn't do that with my doctor, but I did it earlier in life with an attorney that I needed to use, and it was really important. I thought,
9: okay, I can do this. I can
3: my part to to make this a good relationship
9: i didn't have chemo i had radiation and i was the one who said okay i'm on radiation i'd like to go on disability and my oncologist kept saying you need to go back to work and i'm like who are you to tell me that i need to go back to work this is my own decision it was horrible i'm not working because I can't deal with this and work at the same time. My work is film production, which is very stressful. I can't not show up for work one day. And then when I finally got done with radiation, I actually did go back to work. And I went on a film that was shooting in Argentina and I got really sick with a respiratory infection. And I couldn't call him because I didn't trust him. I didn't trust what he was going to say to me. And that's when I realized I
1: needed to change my oncologist. You said the second oncologist was a completely different story. You loved her. So what was it about her that made her so wonderful and why you like her so much?
9: Because for that exact reason, I'm in film production. I travel all over and she started me on a hormone inhibitor, which basically crippled me and I called her and felt comfortable calling her. And she called me back. It was like, yeah, no, this isn't working for you. I loved that she listened to me. And it didn't feel that way with the first oncologist. I felt like I could talk to her and she kept trying to find something new for me. I was grateful for that.
10: These doctors are busy and they're trying to get out of the room. I always make sure that I have a list of questions on my phone. I just use my notepad on my phone and I say, oh, let me double check my list. And I think that asking how the best way to communicate with them In between appointments, whether it's with your oncologist or your nurse practitioner is, or just reserving space to say, this is a lot to process, or I need to think about this. I don't want to have to wait 30 days to revisit this. What is the best way for us to communicate about this again? Is it through the portal? Is it with the nurse practitioner? And just almost hold that theoretical space on their calendar to know that You're giving yourself permission to process and take time to do any extra research or consult with other folks outside of your doctor's office. I've had some very productive email text conversations through the portal with my nurse practitioner. So if you're shy about reaching out or feeling like, oh, this is a silly question or something I should have asked when I was there just reserve a parking spot in their minds that you may be circling back and you want to know the best channels.
1: In the next segment, we turn to the subject of difficult conversation that we, as patients with metastatic cancer, will undoubtedly have with our oncologists. They begin with the shock of the diagnosis, researchers with the fear of progression, and the inevitable question, how long do I have? Here is Kate with Dr. Shapiro.
4: Even though we all understand with this disease that difficult conversations about prognosis and treatment are going to come up, it's still never easy to hear and it can be a bit overwhelming. And within our social group, sometimes we hear stories that there's miscommunication and even patients actually misinterpreting what their oncologists have said to them. We we would love to hear how you know if a patient understands the information that you're trying to convey or even how much that patient understands. And then what steps do you take if the patient hasn't understood you or you thought like maybe the patient's not understanding fully?
8: You bring up a very important points: misinformation, miscommunication, not understanding and not checking understanding. Let's just tackle these separately. The issue is how I, in my clinical practice, inform patients and check their understanding is that I need to take the time and I, as probably all of my colleagues have at times not done that and then regretted it because there was miscommunication and the only way to solve that is to go back and have another communication and start by saying, I don't think we understood each other or so on. But if you ask me how to get it right, I think it's by setting aside time giving information clearly by trying to avoid jargon by trying to chunk the information and by doing what our nurses call a teach back which is tell me what you have heard or tell me what you are going to tell your family when you leave this room about our conversation and then using respectful language to say we may have misunderstood each other or let me clarify this for you or I didn't really intend for that, but it takes time and it takes patience. So I think being as clear as possible, making sure that we give patients opportunity to ask us clarifying questions. And as I often say to my students, interviews that I think are the worst are when my patient is silent. Then I have no idea of what they're thinking, what they understand, or if I've been understood. So I think activating our patients is something we try to do one of the things that the clinician should avoid is lecturing patients. I think that if I were sitting in the role of patient, in the chair of the patient, or as a patient caregiver, which I've done, I think those are the moments when you probably do want to at some point interrupt and say, I would like to know this or that, and try to be as specific as possible. So that's one way of trying to make sure that their information is conveyed that's actually useful, actionable and would help a reasonable person make an informed decision that's one thing there's no question that there may be miscommunication and that often occurs especially in the setting of multidisciplinary disease where maybe a radiation oncologist and a medical oncologist say some things that that may seem radically different but probably isn't it's just expressed differently it may be as a result of framing Uh, we can frame something positively, that something will be successful or negatively as the percentage of, of recurrence or something. And so depending on how it's framed, the understanding may be different. Often another source of misunderstanding is when we use a lot of numerical examples or statistics. And the impression is left perhaps of a higher or lower risk than what actually is the case. I've given you a very long answer, but I think there are many different ways in which we can communicate well and also miscommunicate in addition to the fact that sometimes when somebody as a patient is anxious they may not be in their best cognitive space and remember parts but Mm -hmm. not remember the entire conversation
4: so if you know that there's going to be a very difficult conversation would you ever try to reach out to the patient and say you know maybe you want to bring
8: Someone with you, or is that something that should be done so patients are alone? For sure. In the years where I took care of mostly women with metastatic disease in my practice, I always did. I would typically have somebody on my team um, call the patient and say it would be important, or have me basically say that to them, depending on our relationship. But you're absolutely sure to have somebody present and ideally to schedule those conversations when there's time. And allow more time for those visits as well. This is a
4: little off topic, but we were talking before our interview about different perceptions depending on the community that you're living within. And we we're wondering about ethical informed consent where groups of some patients don't want to know. And they're actually metastatic and they don't have this information and they don't know this information. It's clear and they're being treated. And then we were really discussing what we thought informed consent was and that we wonder how that can be.
8: I'd be very happy to answer that question. But before, will you tell me what you think is informed consent or what you think a person needs to know to make a reasonable, informed decision about treatment?
4: Informed consent to us would be that we understand, number one, what the diagnosis is, and we understand what the treatment is and what the treatment is going to do or not do. So in order to give
8: informed consent, I would think that we would have to have all that information. So so you're talking now about an area that is phenomenally interesting to me because I think there's so many cultural nuances, there's so many ethical considerations about helping people, doing good, causing harm, abusing their autonomy or respecting their autonomy, right? So I would say maybe a standard that would be upheld in a court is people need the information that would allow a reasonable person to make an informed decision. So that's one of the ways that I think about it. In my world and certainly in research and with the um, emergence of more open communication, I can tell you that there have been many studies done, including one that was published in New England Journal of Medicine showing that patients often overestimate their probability of cure. Even people with stage 4 disease think they're being treated with curative intent. So how do we bridge these gaps and what do we need to do? There are many clinicians and many centers where you have to state in your treatment plan that the patient is being treated with either curative or palliative intent. So that basically puts the responsibility on the clinician to say, I have informed my patients. We feel in general, in oncology and palliative care, that patients deserve to know the truth. And we have worked from that with that philosophy in the U.S. and in most Western cultures for decades. And we know that understanding your prognosis and having a realistic expectation is not harmful. That's been shown over and over again. And yet we are told over and over that in certain cultures that is not accepted and that it may lead somebody to feel how shall I say, desperate, despondent. And so there's also the responsibility of not causing harm with unwanted information. I think we need to be very careful. We should aspire to informing, telling the truth. But that said, if a patient where a family specifically asks for some information not to be given or shared, then I think it, we need to be open to talking about it. So in situations where I've been asked to withhold the diagnosis with metastatic breast cancer, I tell you those are the ones that I remember the most and where I worked the hardest. I've often tried to reach a consensus. So the family is a unit can support each other, and the patient doesn't feel that somehow they're alone.
1: A couple of years ago, I went to a San Antonio Breast cancer symposium where Dr. Weiner was talking about a question that is often asked by a metastatic patient to a doctor, and the question is, how long do I have? He gave his uh, opinion on how he handles it, and there's been some studies done on the topic, but How do you feel about it? And so how did you handle
8: this? First of all, let me start by saying that I have the greatest respect and fondness for Dr. Weiner. And I can tell you for a fact that he does this very well and with extreme compassion with his patients. I never shy away from the question. I feel that part of the how long do I have is very similar to what would you do in my situation? It's a very direct question, one that speaks of wanting to connect, and I never move away from it. That said, I typically try to flesh out the question and make sure that I really understand um, what is being asked of me. Like, what made you want to ask me this now? Why is this important for you? And if I'm sure that what the person really wants is a time frame, then I provide it. And the way I do it is by giving typically ranges and talking about the fact that most patients in this situation have a lifespan of somewhere between this and that, which means that some people will live longer and some people will live less time than this. So I try to approach the giving prognostic estimates based on evidence, but also by providing uh, context. I, I love that. I
2: thank you so much for that answer. We take
1: another pause one more time. And once again, listen to the patients and their story.
4: I was terrified in the beginning. And I was pretty sure I was going into hospice. I felt so wrong. And I remember I
8: went in, my heart was beating about
10: 180, I think. And I said, I don't want to hear any timelines. I know I'm stage four and I'm going to die, but I'm going to shut down if you give me timelines. And she was very good. She gave me lots of hope. And she said, well, my aim is to bring you back to a high quality life. And that just meant the world to me because it meant that I was going to live
7: some longer.
6: Here's what happened to me. I had an MRI done of my lower back because I was having trouble With the pains in the fronts of my legs, it turned out that that's when the metastatic breast cancer was discovered. I didn't have any symptoms, and I was called by the person I had seen in the pain clinic. I think it might have been better if she had passed that along to my primary care physician, or maybe even to my oncologist. I I think it should have come from the doctor rather than just from the person who Wasn't my doctor. Of course, I knew what it was and I knew to call my oncologist and tell her. So I'm telling them before they knew. My experience was similar,
3: but different than that. I also had pain in my back and an MRI, but I had gone to my orthopedist and it happens that I know my orthopedist, not to say we're close, but he's operated on me. Four times, and I know him, and I, I have a relationship. I, I like him very much, and I feel very comfortable with him. And it just so happened that I had been to my oncologist the day before, and I had told her about this pain, and that I had an MRI scheduled. And her response was, "I hope it's not cancer." So the possibility of that was planted. When the results of the MRI came in, the radiologist called my orthopedist who had ordered it. My orthopedist immediately called me and not that he came out and said, you have cancer. I don't remember what his words were, but he said the radiologist was very concerned. And he was wonderful on the phone with me. He gave me a lot of time. He didn't rush the conversation. I was crying and he was just saying basically there there i know he was extraordinarily kind on the phone with me for a long time in the middle of what i'm sure was a busy day of his it really hinges a lot on the relationship you have with the person who's telling you and hopefully if you have a good relationship if there's someone who has a good manner and knows how to talk to people
1: then you're, you're lucky As we often talk about seeking a second opinion and express concern on how to bring it up with our colleges and how the question is going to be perceived by them. So no surprise, we ask Dr. Shapiro to weigh in on that subject.
8: That's a sensitive question and probably not the best person to answer, but I'll give it a shot. When I worked for many years in Boston getting a second opinion was such a part of the breast cancer culture that patients often scheduled two opinions before they got the first one. So it was a matter of scheduling luck, whether it was the first or the second. And sometimes when I was the first and I knew there was a second, I felt like, well, why do you need to go and ask somebody else's? So I think most of us who work in this field, even if we believe we're experts in a certain disease. We understand that it's important for either the patient or the family or somebody in their meds to says, make sure you check it out. Why would you want to check it out? Well, you want to make sure the diagnosis is confirmed, that the treatment plan that's been given to you is really the best, that perhaps other options have been considered. And you probably want to make sure there's a good fit between you and the oncologist. And by having different people, you might understand that better. And there's a science that the second is always the better one. It's always better to be the second than the first because the first is the one that usually deals with a lot of the more difficult things. And by the time you get to the second one, you have absorbed it. So that's my interpretation of how this works now. I think that especially in metastatic breast cancer, there's a very legitimate reason to get a second opinion. And that is because there are new therapies and there are people actively involved in research and having access to that may provide you with more treatment options that greatly expand the piles of possible treatment choices. So, I think there's definitely a rationale for that. So, the question is when to do it and how to choose your second opinion, and you need to know what your reason is. If you're not getting along with your oncologist or there's something you love your oncologist, but the setup is horrible and you call and you're frustrated and you can't get information and your treatments keep getting rescheduled and you just can't take it anymore, then you want to look at not just the oncologist, but the package. Like, where do you prefer to go? And if you live in a large metropolitan area, you may have great choices because there are lots of very qualified breast cancer treatment centers. If you're interested in having access to somebody who is actively involved in research and has their pulse on the clinical trials. Then you may want to choose that person, both for their knowledge and probably for their humanity and their relational skills, and make sure that fits. And you may be willing to put up with a lot of other things that uh, you may not love, but you're doing it in order to access that person. Some patients may have a primary community oncologist and an academic oncologist. They consult at points when they need to change treatment, and that works for them. So I think the reasons for requesting another opinion or having a team that involves more than one oncologist can be very different. And I think being very clear about what you're seeking and then trying to choose the person and the facility that delivers on promise is important. And then the other thing is remember that the clinician or the head clinician may go on sabbatical or may travel or may have a vacation. So you need to also consider the setup. Who is there? To answer your phone call if you need help on a day or a month or a week when your primary oncologist is not there. Patients with metastatic
2: breast cancer collect a lot of information. Many of us are informed and are very involved in the community and becoming knowledgeable about our disease.
8: I think the democratization of scientific information has led to a totally different informed patient. Now you can access a lot of um, expert-vetted, high-quality information. And for many years, I participated as a volunteer editor-in-chief for ASCO's website for the public, cancer.net, just because I believe that it's really important to bring expert information to people, to help them prepare for consultations, to help them make important decisions about treatment and just understand as much as possible about disease, treatment, coping, about all the different aspects. But it's hugely important to be fully informed because it allows you to feel more confident. It allows you to have more control. It may allow you to have better questions. Not everybody wants to read the science. Some people want their expert clinician to just give them a high-level summary and move on, and that's perfectly fine as well.
2: I'm wondering if you have any advice for how patients can comfortably... Bring some of that information and their questions to their oncologists.
8: I think that it's important to come across as an active participant in decision making. So say I read, I've been told, I learned about this new treatment. Is that something that I could benefit from? Can you tell me how that uh, fits with my treatment plan or if it does fit with my treatment plan? And I think that's the best way of doing it so Just from the clinician side, I'll tell you sometimes um, a patient will ask me about something that they heard or saw on the internet and has to do with a very early phase experiment done on rats. And they're very disappointed when I say that's very exciting, but that's not going to be something that we're going to be able to talk about for a while. And it's very different. From a person who says, I'm interested in participating in a clinical trial, are there new studies that are being done in this space? And I'm willing to travel, I'm willing to to go to places, help me connect. You can be informed and you can bring this to the consultation room, but you need to sort of also have some way of discerning what may apply to you and what doesn't in a way of discussing this with your clinician. So that it it's part of your usual conversation. You mentioned some like
2: logistical problems, but in addition to those, are there and what are the signs that the doctor-patient relationship isn't working well? And at what point should patients start looking for a new oncologist? Any advice on that?
8: I think the advice I would give is know yourself. If you leave the office or the visits more than once, I mean, once could be a bad day, but more than once feeling that this really isn't working for you, you're not inspired, you don't feel known, you don't feel understood, the person's in a rush or whatever it is, that leads you to feel that way and it happens repeatedly. Or there's been a major breach in communication because you had a problem and they were not able to respond to you when you needed it. Then you feel something's broken and not working for you. And that should begin to trigger the, maybe I need to make a change. I think that's that one way of knowing if you are ready to make a change.
2: At what point would you start looking for a new
8: oncologist? It could be early on if you never click. And you have this illness and you need this person to be your rock in a way and help you get through this and it just never worked for you, then you could do better. And it depends a little bit on your options. It depends on whether or not you are well insured and able to go to other places where you live, whether you need to travel hundreds of miles or whether it's a short cab ride in the city. The other piece that I feel is really important is a team you need a team, you need those specialists, and you need to have your records probably at a place where most people who are looking after you have access to the same information and communicate with each other. So if you have metastatic breast cancer and you need to see a cardio-oncologist, or you also see a psychiatrist, or you also see somebody for an unrelated medical problem, I think that you want your your team to work together and to talk to each other. So there's also the convenience factor of trying to be in a place where you are known and where your records are all held together.
2: So it's important that the team as a whole be able to communicate
8: with each other. I think it's really important. Yes, because say you're considering a new drug and say you've had hypertension and you have maybe a cardiac arrhythmia before you're going to go on this new treatment. If there's any consideration that it could affect your heart function, it would be nice to involve people already working together. So ideally that's what I would also assign some points. We can create a scoreboard for how to decide when it's time to change and what is important in reassembling a new team. But I would assign some importance to all these things, the ease of communication, The accessibility, the coverage when somebody is not there, the access to consultants, the idea that you actually are known and and known by a team. I think all of those things are important in addition to the gut feeling of I like this person or not. Thank you. I have a follow-up question and
1: that actually came up in my life, not with me, but with a friend of mine. And I hear it over and over again. So I have a wonderful oncologist who's been practicing for 53 years, and he will tell you what your next treatment should be, or he will tell you what you should be doing next. But I think the attitudes have changed in the last two years. And I noticed that with the other oncologists, it's more of a uh, partnership with the patient, they defer to a patient to make a final decision. And I was talking to a friend of mine, just the other day. She was very anxious and concerned because her doctor basically gave her two options and told her that the doctor herself couldn't make a decision for her, that she would have to make a decision. Not being a medical professional and knowing very little about oncology, she felt very frustrated. So I I was wondering if that new way of handling Dr. Patient Medication is something here to stay and you approve of it or you feel that there should be a better way of handling a patient who is really not comfortable with making that decision.
8: We could talk about this for days. Oh, yeah. But let but me... I have days. <laughs> if you guys have <laughs> days. We have days. So good. <laughs> let, let me try to spin this a little bit. There is no question that there's some piece of old-school doctoring that is getting lost, and I lament it as much as um, I hear you lament it in, in the way you phrased your question, and that is the responsibility to provide guidance. I think that's a key part of professionalism, and I very much hope that the newer generation of clinicians and physicians who are trained in collaborative decision-making, don't forget that and don't lose sight of the fact that they are still meant to counsel and provide guidance. So presenting a patient who has a life-threatening illness with a menu and saying choose, to me, is not fulfilling the professional code or mission. So I want to be really clear about that. I also can tell you from the other side that patients have changed. Not only have doctors changed, but patients have changed. And I see a lot of patients who have an engineer or data scientist approach to solving their metastatic breast cancer or their breast cancer problem, and they just think that if we just bring enough data and algorithms to the table, we're going to find the right solution and Why don't doctors just do that? And when I talk to them about uncertainty and picking treatments and doing the best we can to match them to the best treatment, but not being able to provide a guarantee, they look at me as if I'm missing something. So I think that these dilemmas affect both sides. I think we want people to understand the role of data in genomic profiling and matching patients and providing targeted therapy. But that doesn't mean that you can walk in and say, here's the blueprint of my cancer. Here's what I want. Give it to me. That's not what these relationships are about. So that's my frustration, Victoria. But I hear your frustration or your fear that perhaps some of the newer generation of physicians are being taught that just presenting the options to the patients and then saying you decide is the way to go. I don't think that's right either. So what I would say is that we need a better meeting place. We need to have patients who are very informed. We need to use all the data science we can to customize treatment. We need to be very clear in how we present it. We need to be clear in that we invite people to tell us something about them and bring their whole soul and persona to the table to make a decision But ultimately we need to provide guidance and that guidance has to come from expertise, from knowledge, and from really responding to the needs of that individual. Thank you so much. It was such a wonderful answer.
1: And I just want to remind you that a few minutes ago, you said you'd be willing to talk for days. So we're not going to hold you to that, but we will want you to come back and talk to us maybe for another hour. How does that sound?
6: That
8: sounds (laughs) like it would be my pleasure. I always learn, and if there's any way I can contribute or be of service, uh, just call me. We just said goodbye to Dr. Shapira.
1: But we want to end this episode the same way we began, with the voices of people living with embassy.
10: I had an experience where someone had posted in a private group a topic about bone metastasis and the treatments. And I was about to set forth on treatment for my bone metastasis and the protocol that I had been given by this very accomplished oncologist was that I was scheduled to have that treatment every month. But because I had seen a presentation by another oncologist, other medical professionals at a conference, I was able to bring that information to my oncologist and advocate for myself and say, I've got a lot of dental work and things tend to really go straight to my teeth. Could we consider this maybe every three months instead of every one month, I am really nervous about this particular side effect. And she said, send me that study. And she was open and willing to look at it. I sent it to her and I've been on it every three months since then. And her willingness to collaborate with me in that regard and to take my information that I found to either refute it or Supported it meant a lot. Sometimes I'll play a little bit naive, rather than be confrontational. I'll say, you know, it's crazy. I'm in these groups, and I run across different perspectives, and I heard something, and I thought it doesn't sound right to me. But then I looked it up, and it seemed like everything was affirmed what they said, and sort of tee it up that way as not. I I think you're not doing your job right. But wow, it was a surprise to me. Therefore, if it is a surprise to the oncologist, they can save face to a certain degree and say, oh, let me look into that. And that was how that went down for me in that instance. And sometimes when you're with your oncologist, as they're reading through the scans, I might say something about, oh, oh, wait a minute. Does that say I have a fixed remutation? And... The oncologist says, You know what that is? I said, Well, yeah, that means I can use peak gray if I need to. Yeah, look at you. So then it was a casual way to let them know they might need to have their thinking cap on in a unique way when you come in the room next time. You bring your own knowledge and impress them in a surprising way, perhaps. And some doctors may take that and be very impressed and happy about that. And it also is sort of like, hey, you know, I, I'm I'm doing my own learning and study and you can't just give me the top line overview. We're going to have to get a little bit deeper on the things that are going on when we're talking about my treatment and any next steps and what's happening with my health.
11: I like my oncologist. She's very thorough. She takes the time to sit down and she listens to everything that I have to say. If I have any questions or concerns, I could ask her those things. I even asked her about a second opinion. I was iffy about asking her about a second opinion because I didn't want to offend her. But like find that is your thoughts that's your prerogative. If you want a second opinion, I can recommend you to a colleague that she's affiliated with in Atlanta. So she gave me an um, oncologist from Emory to go to, and I spoke to that oncologist. And they both were in sync. Okay, this is good. So I have no problems with my oncologist. The only time I'm going to have a problem is I don't feel like she's doing enough for me. But I know that she advocates on my behalf. So if she's not sure, then she consults with another oncologist at Emory about my faith. So that makes me feel comfortable with that.
0: This podcast was produced by Victoria Goldberg. The brilliant Road to a Cure episode team members are Martha Carlson, Dr. Paula Jane, Dr. Ellen Landsberger, Kate Fitzer, and Linda Weatherby. Expert sound design by Bill Smith. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at SHARE Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us and look for a new episode every week. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.